and Pastor Alex uh, preached several messages about the warmth and sense of community and unity that should exist among God's people. And now we're going to briefly revisit the Psalms before the fall when we'll pick back up in the book of John. But this morning we're going to look at the whole Psalm, Psalm 95. So let me read it, and then we'll begin. Psalm 95, starting in verse 1. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." So three things that are happening in this text. Three things that, uh, that I see. First, we have calls to worship. So David, and we're told later in the, there's no note here of who wrote the psalm, but we're told later in the book of Hebrews that this is a psalm of David. So David has specific calls to worship. He calls the people to worship. Then secondly, he gives reasons for worship. So he calls the people to worship, but then he explains, okay, this is why we're worshiping. And three, he gives a... The, kind of the second half of the psalm there, he gives a warning about worship. So calls to worship, reasons to worship, and a warning about worship. First, and this is where we'll spend the lion's share of our time here. If you look at verse 1, verse 2, and verse 6, we see these groups of him calling the people to worship. So we look at verse 1 and 2. We'll start there. Oh, come. So Come. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. So I see one element of worship in that call to worship in verses 1 and 2, and then a second element of worship in that second call to worship down in verse 6 that we'll look at in a moment. Okay, so calls to worship. The first one, worship through congregational singing. Very fitting after... We just sang those last two verses of Before the Throne so heartily and so richly. David is calling God's people to sing to God. And I was going to just say, okay, the first type of worship here is worship through song. He calls the people to worship through song. But the congregational element of the singing here is so prevalent. If you just look at the text, let us come. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us sing. So there's this idea inherent in the song worship here 
that it's corporate, it's congregational. We are coming together to sing. Let us sing, let us make, let us worship God. And we see that throughout the psalm. So the psalm doesn't merely command singing, it commands singing together. So a a key element of worship in the worship of God is this element of congregational singing. So this means that our singing, specifically this singing, singing together on the Lord's Day, should have 100% involvement. Congregational singing has no room for spectators. We don't get to just sit by and watch God's people sing if we are one of God's people. We should not be able to help ourselves from joining in the singing because, as was mentioned in our call to worship at the beginning of the service, we're a room full of justified sinners, those who have believed in Jesus Christ. Congregational singing is an active thing. Look at the text again. And I don't mean like figuratively, I mean literally look at it. Look at the first two verses. Look at the first few words in each line of this psalm. Oh, come, let us make, let us come, let us make. Do you hear that? That active component there? Do you hear that? There, there's activity happening. Let, come, let's make. Let's, let us come, let, let us make. Corporate worship is an activity of the Christian church, which means that each Christian in the church should be actively engaged in it. So corporate worship is not just something we kind of bear through until uh, we get through the singing and then we have the the preaching. No, it's an active element of, of, of the worship of God that we are supposed to be heartily, each and every one of us, engaged in. In fact, it's God's expressed will that each one of us should be singing to him regularly and heartily, particularly when we're together. So I'm going to say something here that could be an overstatement. I don't think it is. And I'm going to spend several minutes after I make this statement backing it up. It may even become tiresome how much I back it up, but I want to back up this statement. Singing is a definitional quality of a Christian. Singing is a definitional quality of a Christian. It's something that Christians just do. Christians sing. It's something that Christians are. Christians are a singing people. To speak of an unsinging Christian or of a Christian who sings with their mouths but their heart is not engaged in the singing, to speak of an unsinging Christian should be on par with speaking of fire that doesn't burn or wind that doesn't blow. It doesn't make sense. That's what wind does. If you don't have the blowing, you don't have wind. And if you don't have a song, then you don't have a Christian, probably. Singing is a definitional quality of a Christian. God's people are and always have been a singing people. So I want, I want to go through a few places in the scriptures. I want to start near the beginning of the scripture and head all the way to the end of scripture. And just, you don't have to turn anywhere, but I just want to make reference to some places that show 
Okay, this is, this is something that is typical of God's people and has been for a very long time. In Exodus 15, God's people have just crossed the Red Sea. They were standing at the edge of the Red Sea saying, oh my goodness, Moses, what have you done? And then they get across the Red Sea safely. Pharaoh's army, the most mighty military force in the world, is destroyed. And what do they do? They sing what's referred to as the Song of Moses to worship God after watching the Egyptians be destroyed. In Judges, Deborah and Barak destroy uh, the Canaanite army after Sisera gets the the tent peg nailed through his head. Uh, If you don't know that story, obviously it's a very interesting one. But they defeat the Canaanites, and then what happens? Deborah and Barak sing to God and lead the people in song to God after the Canaanites are defeated. In 1 Chronicles 16, the Ark of the Covenant is returned to Israel. David's first reaction, lead the people in song. Let's sing to God to show our thanksgiving for what's happened. Job 38 seems to indicate that as God is creating the world, the angels are singing his praises. Which begs the question, when are the angels created? And that's not in the scope of this sermon. Otherwise, I would gladly answer it. Um, The Psalms, obviously. The prophets command God's people to sing over and over again, especially Isaiah. But we also see it in Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah. There are specific commands to God's people to sing to him. Paul and James uh, actually, uh, our brother Kurt Kissinger mentioned this morning in the Sunday School from Colossians, one passage where Paul commands the church to sing. James does the same thing. And then John in Revelation records that God's people will gather from every nation, every tribe, every tongue to sing his praises. Interestingly, uh, the way John words it is he says that those who conquered the beast will stand beside a sea of glass with the harps of God in their hands and they will sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. The Lord has triumphed over our enemies. So the same song that we see at the beginning of the scriptures, we see at the end. We see God's people singing to him about what he has done. According to Bob Coughlin, a guy involved with Sovereign Grace Music, uh, involved a lot with um, producing worship music, the Bible contains over 400 references to singing. And let me ask you, how many of those do you think are negative? Yeah, none. (laughs) Over 400 references to singing. Obviously a big theme of what Christians are supposed to be about. The point here, God's word describes God's people as a singing people. But also, we see this in church history. Okay, so bear with me here. I want to paint you a picture from the very beginning of the church to the modern day and pick up on a theme here. We see Pliny, who is a a Roman official, not a Christian, hates Christianity. He's writing a letter to the Roman emperor at that time. This is the year 112. 112, so I mean, we're talking like 20 years after the book's been written. We see him writing a letter to the emperor Trajan. And he's describing kind of the Christians in that that area and what they're like and what they do. What are these Christians about? Here's what Pliny says. This is in 112, so, I mean, we're talking almost 2,000 years ago. 
Christians were accustomed to assemble themselves together before daybreak to sing psalms and hymns together. That's very much the same of what we're doing today. We're getting together and we're singing together. That's 2,000 years ago. That's that's the equivalent of a church in like the year 4,000 looking back and saying, boy, what Emmanuel Church was doing, it's very similar to what we're doing. This is what God's people do. Tertullian, writing in 194, wrote that early Christians made it their usual custom to sing together from the scriptures. Eusebius, a Jewish historian, this is in the third century, though the early Christians were often discovered by the authorities because of their singing, they refused to leave it off. They 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 were killed for singing, and they persisted. No, we can't not sing. They're going to find you. What are we going to do, not sing? We're Christians. Augustine, 5th century. This is beautiful. Quote, Seeing the soul of mankind struggling in the way of godliness and the soul of man being inclined to the the delights of this world, the Holy Ghost mixed the power of his doctrine with sweet singing. So that while the soul is melted with the sweetness of the verse, the hearing of the divine word might be engrafted with profit. So it says, knowing how weak our frames are, God has chosen to to weave his truth into sung worship. So that our frames can be lifted and the divine truths can be engrafted to us with profit. Martin Luther. And if you know Luther, uh, you'll find this a bit humorous. I truly desire, quote, and this, this one's a bit longer. I truly desire that all, and this is in like the 1500s. So again, we're still just moving through. I truly desire that all Christians would love and regard as worthy the lovely gift of music, which is a precious, worthy, and costly treasure given to mankind by God. The riches of music are so excellent and so precious that words fail me whenever I attempt to discuss and describe them. In sum, next to the word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. Very tender, very sweet. We know that Luther can't stay there for very long. He says, A person who gives this some thought and still does not regard music as a marvelous creation of God must be a fool indeed and does not even deserve to be called a human being. This man should only be permitted to hear nothing but the braying of donkeys and the grunting of hogs. (laughs) Very Luther-esque. A couple more. Moving forward. Benjamin Keach who's a pastor in England in the 17th century. So we're talking you know, late 1600s here. Baptist pastor in England. He said, quote, The singing of praises to God is the indispensable duty of all of God's people for all of time. He also said, Singing is as ancient as the world itself. Jonathan Edwards The duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed to wholly excite and express our religious affections or feelings. 
No other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose, and to do it with music instead of merely the spoken word, but only that such is our nature and such is our frame that these things have a tendency to move our affections towards God. Three more, and they're very short. Charles Spurgeon. You can help a pious heart wing its way to heaven upon a well-selected harmony. J.I. Packer. Any local church anywhere that is spiritually alive will undoubtedly take its singing very seriously indeed. And finally, one more from Bob Coughlin, who's currently writing songs. We sing his songs in this church. Jesus died to redeem a universal choir. So tying our sung worship into the very purpose of Jesus' mission on the earth. He wants a choir. He wants singers. And so he has us. I hope I've made the point. Christians are and always have been a singing people. So Emmanuel Church, let us resolve to be a singing church, which I think we are already. But I hope we're not a singing church on accident. I hope we know why we're a singing church. If we don't sing together, so if we don't do what we just did 10 minutes ago, we deny ourselves worlds of comfort. We're, we're pilgrims. We're a room of exiles, those who are believers in Jesus Christ. We're not home. And so how better to encourage one another and exhort each other along the way to the celestial city than by singing to one another, making melody together towards God. We deny ourselves worlds of encouragement if we don't sing and sing heartily. So, calls to worship. Verses 1 and 2. Let us come, let us sing, let us make a joyful noise, let us sing songs of praise, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. We see all these things are the first element of worship, sung worship. Worship through congregational singing. One more call to worship. And we see this in verse 6. In verse 6, David says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. So when David calls God's people to worship him, to worship God, he doesn't just call them to sing, he also calls them to submit, to kneel, to bow, to obey. So we see worship through congregational singing, but we see him calling us to worship through submission to God. And this encompasses all of our lives, not just the congregational gathering. Um, Michelle and I have a very, very close friend. Uh, Michelle's my wife. Michelle and I have a very, very close friend. We met her in Alabama. She's a Presbyterian, and her name's Phoebe. And we were having a conversation with Phoebe one time, and I said, I was describing a church service that we had been to, to Phoebe, and uh, I, I was talking, and I said, I said, you know, um, so this happened, and then, you know, after the worship, the, the, the preacher, you know, got up and, and preached his message, and, uh, and she stopped me, and she said, oh, after the singing, you mean? I was like, what did I say? She said, you, you said after the worship. 
I've thought about that so many times since then. That was a very, very helpful correction because it's very, very common in Christian vernacular today to refer the singing element of a service as worship. Well, I don't know what the rest of it's for if that's the only part that's worship. No, we, we want to declare clearly that the whole of the gathered service should be worship. We worship over God's word when it's preached. We worship God when we pray to him and confess our sins. We worship him when we confess the, the faith together as saints for thousands of years have done before us. So now wor- worship is certainly not less than singing. We want to say that worship is also a lot more than singing. It's not just singing. So that's what we've been discussing so far is that worship is singing, but we also want to discuss that it's much more than that. So obviously, another way of saying that, if you refuse to sing to God and yet say that you submit to him and bow down to him and kneel to him and obey him, we would say, okay, sure. Likewise, we can sing as loudly as we want But if our lives are characterized by rebellion towards God and disobedience to his commands, outwardly or inwardly, of what worth is our singing? We would be like those people that Jesus described who draw near to him with their lips, but their hearts are far. So we want both elements in our worship. We want to sing praises, we want to make a joyful noise, but then we want to worship and bow down and kneel in submission to God with all of our lives as well. So God demands worshipers, whole worshipers. Not that he gets one part and we get another. We must bow. We must kneel. Our singing must be accompanied by submission. So let us be careful not to divorce sung worship from lived worship. So we don't want to say, oh, I'm very obedient to God. No, I don't really get into singing, though that's not my thing. We also don't want to be loud singers who don't live like Christ outside of the gathered worship setting. I just read this morning, beware of practicing your righteousness before others so that you may be seen by them. And that's the warning that goes to someone who loves to sing heartily to God, but then doesn't really feel like bringing their thoughts into submission to him later that afternoon. Worship must be sung and worship must be lived. So, O come, let us make a joyful noise, songs of praise. O come, let us kneel, let us bow down. So David gives us calls to worship through song and through submission. So, second main point here. David then gives us reasons for worshiping. So he calls us to worship. Verses 1 and 2, through singing. Verse 6, through submission, through bowing down. And then, after each of those calls to worship, he lists out some reasons why we should worship. And this is a very, very important thing to do. We do this. This is why the call to worship exists in our church program. Because we come into the room, each with our various concerns, various needs, family concerns, concerns with our jobs, whatever it may be. Then we come into the room, we're genuinely happy to see each other, but sometimes our conversation can be just about normal things. Ah, oh, how are the kids doing? How's school? Oh, you ready for school? I'm a teacher, so everybody's like, you ready for school to start? My answer invariably is no. But, you know, we, we get to talking about things. We don't want to just rush into singing to God with our hearts in that sort of state. 
So what do we do? Someone comes up here, welcome to Emmanuel Church, and then basically says, let me put some reasons in front of your eyes for what we're about to do. The, the glory and greatness of God. Consider it. We're about to sing to him. The exceeding sinfulness of our sin. Consider it. We're about to go to him for help. The, the glory of, of gathered worship. The, the sweet and tender love of Christ for his people. We put these things in front of our eyes in the call to worship so that we can prepare our hearts to worship him. That's exactly what David's doing here. He's saying, come, let's sing. Let, let, let's worship, let's bow down. Why? Let me tell you. Look at verses 3, 4, and 5. So let's come, let us make joyful noise. Let's come, let us make a joyful noise. Verse 3. For, because the Lord is a great God. He is a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. So, first reason for worship. God possesses ultimate dominion. Look at the statements here. The Lord is a great God. He's a great king above all gods. He's the creator of all things. The depths of the earth are his. The mountains are his. The sea is his. Why? Because he made it. His hands formed the dry land. Uh, in Vacation Bible School this summer, uh, several weeks ago, uh, we looked specifically at God being the king. So we looked at that one aspect of God. And regularly, we would ask the kids, why does God get to be king? What's so special about God? Why, why does God get to be the king and no one else gets to be the king? And the answer was, he made everything. Of course he gets to be the king. So the sea is his. Why? Because he made it. We are his. Why? Because he made us. One Puritan commentator said, God's being the creator of all makes him without dispute the owner of all. So, of course he owns everything. He made everything. So, he made you. There was a moment when you did not exist. And then the next moment, you did. God did that. Your soul, your consciousness, God just made. From nothing, using no other materials, he just made you. So how dare we not submit to him? How dare we not worship, bow down, kneel in every area of our lives? What are we going to say? Oh God, you, you, can, you can have this and this, but not this. You know, we, we keep this with, with a closed hand. You know, God, you can't touch this part. He made that hand. You know, the mouth that we, that, that we say, oh, I'm not going to do that. He made that mouth. How dare we revolt against him? How dare we do anything other than sing and bow and worship? That's our only station as people who have been made by him. So in consideration of God's sheer power, we should always be ready to sing. We should always be ready to submit to him. So if we find, if we consider God 
and we find him boring or unattractive, our hearts respond with apathy towards him. That is purely our sin. No other, no other cause. He is immortal, invisible, God-only wise, in light inexpressible. If we are not awed by him, it is only because our eyes have the scales of sin on them. So brother, sister, if you find your heart not stirred up towards God when you consider him, when you consider that he has made you, that you would not exist right now if it were not for his word upholding you, if that does not cause you to worship, if that does not cause me to worship, we should repent. We should say, God, I'm sorry. I, I, I haven't gazed long enough at your glory in your word. Because I can assure you, brothers and sisters, we gaze plenty long at the things of the world around us. And when our Netflix queue is more appealing than the God who made us, we are in severe, severe straits of sin. And it is worthy of repentance. So brothers and sisters, let me put before you, God is inexpressibly powerful and eternally interesting. So how can we do anything other than sing to him, bow down to him, worship him? These are reasons that we should worship God. So in light of God's total dominion, he deserves to be worshiped. It's reason one. Secondly, God gives special attention and special care to his people. So second reason for worship. So again, verses one and two, sing, come, make joyful noise. Verse three, four, and five, because God is a great God. He made everything, he owns everything, he's above all other gods, he's, he is the great God. Then another call to worship in verse six. So come, bow down, kneel before the Lord, our maker, the one who made us. More reasons to worship. Look at verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So not only does this psalm highlight God's grandeur and greatness and inexpressible glory, it also shows his condescension and his tenderness and his care for us, his people. So we should worship, we should bow down, we should kneel before the Lord our Maker. Why? Because we are His people. He is our God. We are the sheep of His hand and the people of His pasture. God constantly cares for our preservation and well-being. And such omnipresent divine attention obviously requires worship. So not only his greatness and his grandeur, but his tenderness to us, his condescension to his people. How could we not worship him with song and with deed? If the God that we just described as the maker of all things is as great as he says he is, what can we possibly lack if he is a shepherd to us? 
nothing. He made everything. Anything is at his disposal, and he's promised us that he is concerned for our well-being, and he will withhold no good thing from us. He didn't withhold his own son, so how will he not with him freely give us all good things? What could we lack if this God is our shepherd? Why would we worry if this God is our shepherd? We should worship him because he cares for us. Quote from John Newton. John Newton said, I am prone to puzzle myself about 20 different things which are equally out of my power and equally unnecessary if the Lord be my shepherd. Why would we worry? Our anxieties are superfluous. God is our shepherd. What, what, what is he going to withhold from us? Nothing. So why, why would we worry? Why, why would we do anything other than just bow down and sing to him? A Puritan, Thomas Goodwin, wrote a book called The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. And in that book, he said, he's talking about as Christ blesses his people, so Christ giving the blessings of his death and resurrection to his people for their well-being, As Christ does this, the hearts of his people are more sanctified, their spirits are comforted, and so Christ comes to see the fruits of his labor. And he is comforted thereby, for he is more glorified in it. Yea, Christ is much more pleased about the saints' well-being than they themselves can be. Therefore, He waters and refreshes them at every moment. You hear that tenderness there? God's, Christ's disposition towards us as people? Great God, grandeur, big, glorious, tender, condescending, refreshing us like little sheep, the sheep of his hand. There's a, a song that we sing that sums this up uh, very well. Uh, it's called All Praise to Him. Uh, it's by Sovereign Grace Music. And the last part of one of the verses says, All praise to Him who reigns in love. You can even hear it there. He reigns in love. Who guides the galaxies above, yet bends to hear our every prayer with sovereign power and tender care. See, there's two sides. So, all praise to him. We should sing to him. We should worship him. So David in this psalm gives us calls to worship. He gives us reasons to worship. Third and finally, he gives us a a warning about worship. Now, at this point, considering the subject matter we've just dealt with, the psalm seems to just take a random left turn. Uh, and it gets really dark and depressing all of a sudden. So, let's start with verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test. Even the, the, the speaker changes. God is no longer third person. God is first person, which is interesting. So 
Don't harden your hearts like when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. Quick recap. The story that he's making mention of. This is when the people of Israel are, they've just crossed the Red Sea. They're now on a journey to the promised land and they're out of water. So they're thirsty. And we give them a hard time, but they've been days without water, so they start to grumble against Moses. And therefore, grumble against God. And so God, you you stiff-necked people, did you see what I just did to you? I just parted a whole sea and you think I can't provide water for you. He's prov- they, they're provoking him. They're testing him. They're putting him to the test. His words. And so the names that this piece of land where this happened, the names it's given are Masa and Meribah, which mean testing and quarreling. So God views their complaints as a test of his character and as a fight with him, a quarrel with him. Again, the God we just described, we people have the nerve to quarrel with him and to test him. So the question, why is this warning here? And not just why is it here, but why is it there, right there? Why is this warning in Psalm 95? How how does the subject matter we've just seen lead to a warning like this? And this, this passage in Psalm 95 is repeated frequently throughout the New Testament, especially in the book of Hebrews. So why is this here? Well, simply, David is warning us not to disregard the things he's just said. So the psalm flows like this. Sing. Sing to God with gratitude because he's God. Be totally submissive to God because he preserves us so faithfully. And take care that you actually do these things because to recognize God's works And your response to be hard-heartedness is sin. And it incurs God's wrath. That's what he says. They provoked me. They tested me. So I swore in my wrath that these people would not enter my rest. And the author of Hebrews takes this passage and applies it to new covenant people. So this isn't just to Israel. The author of Hebrews gives this exact passage and then says, Take care, brothers. Be warned, brothers. Sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So the author of Hebrews applies this warning to new covenant people and the clear implication of this text for us today is this. When we fail to worship God in song or in deed, we test him. We put him to the test. It's like parents in the room, if you've ever told your kids... Don't, don't test me. What are they doing? They're, they're poking. They're disobeying. You've told them to do A and they're walking towards B. Hey, don't, don't test me because you're not going to like where it goes. God speaks to us the same way. When we withhold parts of our life from him, he's, whoa, 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 don't test me. Don't dare test me. Do you know who I am? I've cared for you so tenderly and you will test me now? We should take it very, very seriously. 
So the consistent sin of the people of Israel was rebellion. And brothers and sisters, is it not rebellious in light of all that God has done for us to refuse to sing to him? Or for us to withhold any part of our life from total submission to him? Is that not rebellious? On the contrary, our worship, again in song or in deed, should be soft-hearted worship. It is becoming of Christians to be malleable in the hands of the potter. And what a safe place to be. People of his pasture, sheep of his hand. It's not buck against his authority. We should gladly sing and gladly submit. I want to say a quick word. Uh, I wasn't going to say this, but I will. Warnings like this can be very, very scary for Christians. And they can make us look twice at our doctrine of eternal security. Whoa, 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 whoa. You, say, you said the author of Hebrews is warning Christians not to fall away from God? I didn't think that was possible. And I want to say a quick word here of comfort, but then also reinforce the warning. No truly justified Christian can ever fall away from God. But professing Christians who have fooled the people around them and even, the Bible makes this clear, fooled themselves, absolutely can fall away from the living God because they were never his to begin with. So brothers and sisters, when we see passages like this, they're warnings to Christians, real bona fide, genuine warnings to us to say, watch your heart. Consider your heart. Take care, brothers. Because if there's an evil, unbelieving heart in you, even though you have professed Christianity, you may fall away from him and show that your, your heart never was really changed. So, fight sin, submit to God, and therefore prove that you are indeed a Christian. That's how these warnings work for believers. Real warnings. But they in no way compromise eternal security. So we see calls to worship. David says, sing to God. Worship him, bow down to him, submit to him. There are reasons why we should worship. God's a great God above all gods. He's magnificent. He made all things. He made you. Also, he's tender and compassionate and condescending and he waters and refreshes us at every moment. Why would we not sing to him? Why would we not worship him? And then there's a warning. Brothers, sisters, do not disregard these things. Give them the weight that they deserve. I want to make three applications and then we're done. These will be brief. Some of these I've already hinted at. First of all, Emmanuel Church be a singing church. Let us be defined by our congregational singing. We should take very, very seriously when we're coming into worship, okay, we're, we're doing what Psalm 95 says right now. We're coming together. We're singing. We're giving thanksgiving. We're coming into his presence with thanksgiving. So let me make sure my heart is thankful towards God right now. And then let's just soak up the means of grace like a sponge and then sing The grace of Christian singing today has been largely compromised in a lot of churches. 
And my, my wife and I experienced this in churches that we've been in in the past, and um, as we were looking for a church and eventually found Emmanuel, uh, we, you know, we were looking for churches, and we, we were just so disappointed in the congregational singing of Christian churches. Either the people around you are evidently disinterested in singing to God and just don't sing at all, or the music is so loud and the light's so dark you'd never know there were people around you singing at all. None of these things contribute to the exhortation and mutual encouragement that congregational singing is supposed to provide. When, when we're singing before the throne of God above, the, the instruments fall away, we hear, each, we hear just a sea of voices swelling up. What happens? Our hearts are encouraged. Yes, I'm not the only one that struggles with sin. I'm not the only one that has to run to God and remind myself that my name is in his hands and written on his heart. My brothers and sisters around me evidently feel the same way because listen to them sing. And so like pilgrims on the journey, we're able to exhort and encourage one another by our hearty, rich, congregational singing together. So we don't want to do things that detract from that. We don't want to compromise our congregational singing in that way. So especially members of Emmanuel Church, let's each of us just resolve that a defining characteristic of our church will be that we are a singing church. Alongside the doctrinal principles that we hold very tightly, let us also hold certain practical distinctives. Like the fellowship and hospitality at Emmanuel Church are tender and sweet, warm. What a warm church. They're so friendly and hospitable to each other. They, they really love one another. Boy, they really take the education of their children seriously enough to give them truth about a big God at a very young age. That should be a distinctive of our church. Boy, they really just train their children in godliness. And, boy, they are singers. At Manual Church, man, the congregational singing there that should be a, a practical distinctive that we hold very, very dearly. We're known as a singing people. Our hearts are just so glad we, we can't help but sing. And our hearts are so secure in Christ, we can't help but just give our lives to him. So let us commit to one another that each week, week in, week out, our corporate singing to God will be sincere, cheerful, buoyant and deep. Second application, and this again specifically regarding the singing aspect, let me encourage you to just disregard your talents. Whether you have them or whether you don't. My wife and I are very clear that we are not great singers, but we love congregational singing. Um, you may say, oh, I can't sing well. Well, let me encourage you with this. Here's a quote, another quote from Bob Coughlin. I love this. This is, this is awesome. The question in Christian singing is not, do you have a good voice, but do you have a good song? Amen. Brothers and sisters, we have the best song. Amen. Angels look at our worship and furrow their brows. They, the song of the redeemed is a sweet thing. We were talking in Sunday school class this morning, the equip class. How do the trials and afflictions that we have contribute towards our holiness? 
It's because, and we talked about a hymn um, that we sing here called um, Christ the Short and Steady Anchor, where it says, and the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. Don't you know that the momentary affliction that you experience now is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory? What a song we have! Even in afflictions and trials, especially in afflictions and trials. And so the question is not, do I have a good voice? Are people going to be distracted by how bad my voice is? You've got a good song. You have the best song. So let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, let's sing. And finally, keep a close watch on your heart. So it's so easy for our hearts, and the author of Hebrews goes exactly to this place when he references this passage. It's so easy for our hearts to drift, to wander, and to harden. Not suddenly, but gradually. We don't pay attention. A couple weeks go by, and we haven't been keeping a close watch on our heart, and we just wake up and realize one morning, boy, it's really difficult to rouse my heart to worship Christ. It's because we haven't been keeping a close watch on our heart. So Psalm 95 warns us to take care that, in the words of the author of Hebrews, we are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The prescription of the author of Hebrews is to exhort one another every day. So, that's the prescription that I give to you and to myself. Emmanuel Church, every day, find a way to exhort one another, particularly on the Lord's Day. How better can we exhort one another than by joining in the song of our brothers and sisters and the song of saints for ages past and through exhorting one another to continue on the road to the celestial city, singing a song the whole way. Let's be a singing church. Let's pray. God, we confess that we do not think of sin as seriously as you think of sin. Our thoughts about our own sin are not in accord with the scriptures. The Bible paints sin as a cancer, a disease, a plague. And we, we toy with it. We don't take it seriously. So God, through your Holy Spirit's power, give us the discernment and the discipline and the joy to mortify our sin. Because when we put to death the deeds of the body and we have the mind of the spirit, we experience life and peace. So God, loosen our tongues, our sinful tongues, to sing to you now again together. And then bless us this week to make war on our sin and to keep a careful watch on our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.